0: Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a Theater and Performance Studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am recording live in person from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. More about that in a minute. I am joined by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, you had some time to take in Toronto today, I think. Did you
1: see anything interesting? Well, I walked around a fair amount today and well, the backdrop here is I grew up, I I grew up in Buffalo, right? So I spent a lot of time as a kid in Toronto and it's a very different city than when I was much younger. It's a, it's a much bigger, taller, higher skyscraper esque city. It's fantastic. Yeah. All all my memories
0: of Toronto from growing up were from the kids in the hall. So I've had the theme song stuck in my head for like 48 hours, (laughs) but it does seem like a different city. Yeah. It's changed. Yeah.
1: It's fantastic.
0: It's been really great. Um, I am joined also by Sarah Bae-Jung of York University. Sarah, first of all, thank you so much for hosting us here for this very special edition of the podcast. Um, you are at the end of the first week of classes here at York. How are you holding up?
2: Uh, thank you so much, panel. Uh, so far, so good. Um, it's, it's certainly, you know, it's the first time a lot of people are coming to campus, and all of our first years and it's it's very exciting, um, but so far still standing and really delighted to welcome both of you to not only York University, but to Toronto and I think there are a lot of people who uh, you know, were in Toronto not very long ago who would say that it has changed yes. a great deal yes. uh, very recently. So yes, it's a very dynamic city, but great that, to have you both in it.
0: Thank you. Yeah, as I, as I was walking around campus upon my arrival yesterday, I saw the students and I was like, wow, these students are like excited, energetic. This is great. I didn't realize it was like literally the first day of classes and that, (laughs) hence hence that palpable energy.
1: Um, Well, I'm sure under Sarah's leadership, they're just as enthusiastic and excited (laughs) in week 12 or 15 and at the very end of the year as well.
2: Well, you know, Dean Young, I appreciate the vote of confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Episode
0: 58 is a very (laughs) special episode, listeners, because uh, I'm not crying. You're crying because we are marking the end of a chapter in the podcast. Sarah and Harvey are moving on, leaving the roster of regular co-hosts. I'll let you each say just a word about why you're leaving at this juncture. But please reassure me it's not because of anything I said or did.
2: Not not at all, panel. Uh, it has been a great pleasure. Uh, and I actually still remember the phone call when you reached out to me asking if I wanted to be on the podcast. And as a fellow Slate GabFest listener, I was thrilled. And I've said often that, you know, they would pry the, the podcast from my cold, dead hands. But um, I feel that, that my schedule is getting closer and closer to that, making that a reality. So in the... In in the effort to stave that off a little bit longer, I'm I'm gonna take a, a, a bit of a break, but but hope to visit occasionally and and just thanks so much for including me from the beginning. It's been just a complete pleasure.
0: Absolutely. Harvey, I imagine
1: your reasons are not completely uh, divergent. They are very similar. My schedule is pretty packed. And and I will admit, I think that part of the last two years of COVID and when everything went Remote and virtual, it made me really want to prioritize in-person gatherings and conversations. So, which is why I'm thrilled that we're actually in person and podcasting at the same time.
0: Yep, That's true. Yep. Well, I will I will save my um, thanks and thanks for the memories for the end, so that I don't get too choked up right when we're beginning the episode. Um, but I'm excited to get into the the topics that we are going to discuss today. Um, uh, today on On tap, we're going to talk about three fascinating subjects. We read Nikki Yaboa's article, All the Nations a Stage, the Ghana National Theater as Sankofa Practice, published by Theater Journal in June of 2021, and this year's recipient of the Atha Outstanding Article Award. We watched Jordan Peele's film Nope, starring Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya. We will piece together why we selected this film for a theater and performance studies podcast though the more you watch it the more you realize there's a lot of uh, of intersection there and very exciting we all last night witnessed an unforgettable bit of live performance Elton John's farewell concert performance as part of his farewell yellow brick road tour there is a lot to dig into there oh Harvey I have to ask you I don't know if you check Twitter but did you see that Reuters wants to use the film you took and tweeted of Elton John on stage? I didn't see that. Yes. Yeah. Are you going to get in touch with them and, and and secure rights or whatever? No, no, I, no, I wasn't <laughs> planning on it. I wouldn't either. Um, before we dig into those topics, I'm going to um, pass the microphone to Sarah
2: for our land acknowledgement. So recognizing that uh, usually we're doing this virtually for some, but today we are all gathered in person uh, at York University. Uh, which ex- recognizes the many indigenous nations that have long-standing relationships with the territory upon which York University campuses are located, and that these long precede the establishment of the university. York acknowledges its presence on the traditional territory of many indigenous nations. The area known as Tkaronto has been caretaken by the Anishinaabek Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Huron-Wendat. It is now home to many First Nation Inuit and Métis communities. We acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This territory is subject of the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. And it's uh, it's been a real pleasure to uh, be able to share this um, and to invite you both. And, and I feel grateful to be able to to live and work and play on this land and, and really uh, it's always a pleasure to share it with others. So thank you so much, both of you, for for being here.
0: Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you for that acknowledgement. Um, so we're going to talk first of all about uh, Nikki Yaboa's fantastic article on the Ghana National Theater. Um, I'm going to read the title again because I think I got one word wrong in it in, when I read first time read through the first time. It is entitled "All the Nations a Stage: The Ghana National Theater as Sankofa Praxis, not Practice." Um, this was published in Theater Journal last year, June of 2021. It won the Atha Outstanding Article Award. Um, you know, we, we picked this for the podcast, and uh, it was partly because it was an award winner. We always keep an eye on that. It's a t- on a topic, African theater, that I don't believe we've talked about on the podcast, or if we have, it's been quite a while. Um, and I was delighted um, uh, reading it. It is fantastic, and there's so much in here to dig into, but I was so delighted uh, because you can't tell from the title that it is about theater architecture foremost, and that's a, a special topic of interest for me. Um, so I'll give a quick sort of, you know, praises of the article for those of you who haven't read it yet. Um, Yeboa traces the post-British rule cultural renewal project of Sankofa through the multi-decade effort to build a physical national theater in ghana Um, and there's so much that's really interesting and exemplary here um sankofaism uh, Yoboa explains is a, product, a, product, a project of critical adaptation uh, to cultural renewal rooted in the cultural philosophy of Sankofa, which means in abbreviated form that it is not taboo to go back and fetch your past when you forget. So in the post-colonial uh, Ghanaian context, this project seeks to combine colonial and local culture to produce something new adhering to neither strictly but signaling and embodying something both politically progressive and liberated from hegemonic norms. Um, briefly, Yeboah's intervention here, one among many, is to use space as a conceptual keystone. Rather than, than thinking of Sankofa as an instance of post-colonial hybridity a la Homi Bhabha, a concept which is usually articulated through time and temporality, Yeboa engages with it spatially, examining the concrete and practical efforts to design and build a national theater playhouse. She connects this to critical geography and examines how the literal, literal contours of this planned space were loaded with cultural, political, and geopolitical significance. As, as you read the article, it becomes, it sort of, it goes through the decades, and you. one of the things that, that um, she is tracing is the sort of shifting geopolitical uh, configurations in which Ghana is implicated. So there's a lot in here. I'm very curious to know what the two of you um, sort of picked up on and, and, and really enjoyed. For me, I'll just share that it, it took me right back to my research on 18th century theater uh, architecture reform. You know, I think on the first page, there's a footnote and a mention of the theater historian T.E. Lawrenson, to whom um, uh, one of the uh, initiators of this National Arts Council wrote a letter um, about the effort to, uh, you know, recruit members into this National Arts Council. T. E. Lawrence is probably not known to a lot of On Tap listeners, but he wrote um, a book called *Stage and Playhouse* in or Fr- the French stage and playhouse in in the seventeenth century, which for me was one of those books that when I was writing my dissertation in my book was always right there on the desk because I was writing about eighteenth century. French theater architecture. So I kept thinking, I want my book to almost be like a sequel to this. Um, And so what a surprise and what a delight to find T.E. Lawrenson mentioned, um, though, how interesting that that Ghanaian officials were corresponding with a British historian of French theater architecture about constituting this committee um, to sort of chart, you know, chart a path for Ghanaian cultural practice uh, in the post-colonial era. So you know, this, there's all sorts of comparisons here. There's a lot of applicability. I, I I thought a lot about how much this effort, um, corresponded to other historical, nationalistically oriented culture and theater projects. And, and the, the Hamburg National Theater, um, for which the Hamburg Dramaturgy Lessing's, you know, famous work was created, was a similar kind of project. It was Germany in the 18th century trying to, figure out and sort of perform its own identity on a a national stage, creating a new institution, funding it, struggling to find the right theater to put into it, and also fighting this, uh, in this odd tension, which I think is very present in Yeboah's account, which is how does a nation try to self-consciously portray or perform its identity against other forces right in other words in the same way that you know Germany was trying not to just be another uh replicator of French cultural hegemony Ghana especially in the early period is trying to not be another you know sort of post-colonial recipient of English cultural hegemony and the weird uh I don't know dilemmas that I think these these projects get into by identifying themselves against consciously against something else that they don't want to be um so anyways there, there's a lot of of really great stuff in this in this article um I don't know what did you what did you two think what did you pick up on
2: two things really struck out from struck stuck out to me the first is this idea of architecture as a presumably durable dramaturgy mm-hmm. but of course as the article explores perhaps not right so you know we I, I don't know where it came from, but the whole space is destiny. I mean, certainly uh, as, as an academic administrator, <laughs> right, you, you you know this well, Harvey, right, which is that the spaces you have will determine a lot of what you can do in them. And so um, this idea of conditioning a national theater in and through it, a building project, both in terms of how it's conceived and executed, but then also what happens in it. Um, I thought that was really interesting, especially because the the architecture gets undone. Uh, spoiler alert, I guess, at the <laughs> end of the um, and ends up triangulating to a very different kind of cultural uh, outreach uh, through a Chinese architect. Right. Um, so, and and the influence is there, and the and you know once again sort of embroiling. Uh, African culture and and experience in proxy battles for global political uh, negotiations and 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 power dynamics. So I found that really interesting the way it kind of gets located, and the second is the the embrace and critique of hybridity as a concept. And you know, thinking about the last couple of years, this notion of the hybrid and has been so prevalent, and we're going to do high high flex teaching and hybrid this and <laughs> and, and, you know, I thought that there was a really that youboa really had a an in a really important uh, position at the end of the article, which is really looking at at the concessions that hybridity often has to make and and seeing opp- both opportunity um. As well as as some real, uh, as some real dangers and, and difficulties there and challenges. So I found those two things to be the most salient out of the article, but but just an incredibly rich uh, accounting and, and exploration. I found it quite riveting. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I enjoyed reading uh, this article, and when, perhaps what might have done it, well, I would have enjoyed it reading it anyway, but I watched Nope before. <laughs> reading the article. So then I was dazzled by Jordan Peele's ability to balance multiple storylines. So then I was particularly attuned to yes. uh, Nikki. What she does here is she presents a an account essentially of bento cosmopolitanism trying to look back toward a past, to reclaim the past, this sort of not quite anachronistic, but how do you look back to you know, restore the traditions of the region um, to unwrite some of the damage of colonialism. So I'm reading it, and I'm thinking, great! I know where this is going to go. Uh, this theater is going to be built. Uh, this team has been successful to reclaim these roots, right? And 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 what happens is, it's as Sarah was saying, a checked effort each each step the design so get fully realized, the temporary building that gets built gets gets torn down. And so there's that part. But then what happens is there's this whole second storyline, which which I find dazzling, which be, in my mind becomes the main storyline for this article, you know which is looking at the impact of external investment mm. on um, on Canadian theater. So it's what happens when you're subject to U.S. funding, what happens when the Chinese and Chinese funding comes in and how that actually can, you know, plays the most central role in determining the look of the theaters. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that she gave us both of those tensions, I found quite rich. Absolutely. Um, yeah, there's a,
0: there's a sort of geopolitical phase uh, dramaturgy to it in a way. And at first it's Ghana versus its British colonial legacy and how one recovers the past or what are the insecurities or pitfalls of trying to recover something prior to to colonization and then instituting it post-colonization. Then these uh, efforts to... It's it's a really interesting story in terms of diplomacy and soft power. There's a moment where I believe they contract a, a Danish architectural firm to build the first and most ambitious vision for this project um partly because it's not english right Mm. there's there do not they do not want an english architect building this um to me part of what was really fascinating was the the past the the section where the different performance styles and their relationship to the prospective architecture are discussed so there are Uh, Ghanaian traditional forms that do not have a sort of, you know, um, uh, hard and fast proscenium separation. So there's an effort to build a sort of two-chambered building, one that will have a big um, sort of circular, more open, less proscenium uh, orientation uh, that that is outdoors, and then a smaller indoors proscenium station for staging European theater. Um, There's some great uh, excerpts from letters uh, where I think a, a British official you know is commenting on this project and says well, you this is a very interesting um, And it's interesting that you you know, you you have this outdoor theater and then you have a proper theater and someone from the um, National Arts Council writes back and like and says you need to stop calling that a proper theater. That is a European English style theater It is not proper um, uh, Similarly, I think there was a there's a passage where the so uh, an African commentator is is um, talking about the the proscenium theater and saying you know, the Ghanaian audiences are not gonna be psyched to be sitting still or sitting in this sort of fixed format that you are used to. There's going to be some extremely hectic, boring theater or something like that going on. Um, so it, that stuff is really, really enlivening to me. Again, it remi- it's not about my research, but it reminds me of what happened in French architecture reform, where there were all these, these um, ambitious forms to create a distinctly French style of architecture. That would not be like the old tennis courts and not be like Italian theater, but would be distinctly French. And then when they finally started to build these things, the scenic artists could not work within them. Mm -hmm. There's a way that the architecture this I think this is thematic and goes beyond this case study, which is reform oriented um, theater architects or just theater architects who are not performance practitioners, building buildings according to what they imagine. Will be this incredible, you know, uh, playground for theater artists, and then theater artists finding them and saying, "Oh no, 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 this cannot work at all." Um, there's a moment when a, a an important figure in the article, she's a playwright. I'm going to try to find her name, um, so I get it correct. Oh yes, um, Ifua Theodora Sutherland. Um, ultimately starts a touring company because the, the building that they end up producing first is just not suitable. It's not connecting with the Ghanaian audiences. So she goes back, um, and, and, and finds that actually a sort of more mobile, um, less fixed, uh, uh, architectural plan is the, is the appropriate one. So yeah, I don't know if you two in your experience as deans or professors or whatever have had this experience of like an old theater that's built in a quirky way. And you know, the theater artists are constantly complaining about it. it. It seems like it's a perennial problem of theater architecture that the building never seems to quite get the performance uses right. I don't know. Do, do you have experience with this? Is this just me working at WashU with our weird
1: Edison theater? Well, I think it's hard to anticipate every use of the theater. Right. Yeah. And it takes so long to design a theater that... You know, so in this case, in the article, what initially is privileged is... A series of what well, a desire to have a large outdoor space that you know, allows you to recreate you know, large gatherings for concert parties essentially, right. and then it moves over time to essentially being an indoor space with minimal marginalized social gathering outdoor ish space. Mm-hmm. And certainly, there's a politics attached to it, but I also would suspect that there is a, a use factor, right? You know, so how do people anticipate it being used? And I think that's often the issue, like so. For building projects, it's not uncommon for a whole new set of uses to be imagined for the building right. after it's opened, and then it's too late to to make those adjustments. Right.
2: Well, one of the other things that the article draws attention to is the uh, the idea of, of strategic absences and neutrality um, as as structuring, uh, no pun intended, I guess, or pun intended, uh, <laughs> as, as, as structuring the exercise also, right? So, so this kind of critique of a certain kind of modernist, um, uh, aesthetic mm-hmm. is, is on the, on the one hand, right? There's a desire to put something in place that has a certain kind of location and, and energy and recognition of histories and, and lived experience and, 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 the the different kinds of current practices, if not anticipated ones, but then also then the 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 shift with the with the with Jung the the Chinese architect who comes in where it becomes all about mood and form, yes. and and a bunch of intangibles. So it's also, I mean, the other thing that I think some of these buildings become subject to, and theaters are uh, are are certainly one of them, is that you also are dealing with with trends in architecture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you mentioned the Toronto skyline There, you know, we have a certain kind of project, lots of condo, widely critiqued condo towers going up that have, and now, you know, people are moving away from glass and steel, for example, and moving away from concrete. And so you also see these kinds of trends in terms of meaning making in and through the building. And, and I, I wonder, I have not had the experience of having to guide a, a, a new theater construction, but I do wonder how much the tension of an architectural vision as an artistic and aesthetic vision also is in competition with yeah. art, the artistic practice within theater spaces and within the larger you know goals, you know, political, social, cultural goals of the of the building. Yeah. Yeah
0: it's one of the things that happens with the specialization and the separation of these professions into all these different fields. It used to be that scenic artists, and when I say used to be, I think I'm talking about the 17th century, and, and in the Western European context specifically, but that it used to be that scenic artists would be in charge of constructing the performance venue, and that you just needed to give them a space and they would build the risers and they would build the backdrops. And one of the things that happens in the 18th century is that architects become more specialized and they, and the theater buildings are purpose-built and you need an architect to build a big building, but the architects don't know performance. So they are looking at other buildings. They're going to plays. They're imagining they understand how it works. They're imagining they understand how to make it, um, you know, uh, uh efficient and, 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 and proper and, uh,
1: uh, useful for the theater artists. But there's a real gap in, mm. in know-how. Yeah. And what I find interesting about the article is that what, stands out almost in in relief or in, in absence here is the expertise of the locals like they're the ones who no one pays attention to mm-hmm. right so it's the arts committee that is formed is structured to block out people with local expertise and local knowledge and it's all people who are cosmopolitans so They've they've traveled they've made theater they've consulted on theater from all over the place Forwards these ngos even the even the sankofa bird is in, that's pictured in the article yeah. is a gift from ngo yeah and yeah. so you know whether it's people who were who were from the area who then left or if it's ngos or if it's outside actual governments right again and again and again uh, people are projecting their image of what the arts should be in ghana without actually listening to the people who are local. Yeah. yeah, it's another one of the really fascinating sort of asides or discourses in here. It's
0: about that, precisely that issue of who was recruited to be in the National Arts Council and the Bintus, the uh, people who have been outside, un, you know, are socialized to a sort of international or cosmopolitan community. And this idea that in order to, you know, create an independent Ghanaian arts institution, you need people who... You can't have just Ghanaians do it. You have to have Ghanaians who have been abroad and who can communicate the vision to the outside world that we're trying to do here. One of these sort of paradoxes they get wrapped up in. Um, The last thing that was really exciting to me about this article is that uh, IFTR next year is going to be in Ghana, in Accra. So if you can go to IFTR, which I, uh, fingers crossed, am going to try to do, we can see uh, with our own eyes these projects that um, Yeboah has written about. And I would hope with this article coming out and the prize that uh, Yeboah, Yeboah will be there um, herself in, in, in Ghana next year. Um, so Who knew? That,
2: That's very exciting. That is
0: exciting. Yeah. Um, so uh, next, we all watched Nope. Nope. The, nope, the, uh, Jordan Peele, <laughs> it's fun to say, um, the, the Jordan, new Jordan Peele film, uh, Jordan Peele wrote, directed, produced this film, uh, uh, starring Kiki Palmer, Daniel Kaluuya, Steven Yoon, Brandon Perea. Um, I think we all liked this movie. There's a lot to talk about, Sarah. Uh, I know you got very deep into the resonances and the themes and what's going on in this film. Why don't you lay it on us?
2: Well, thank you, panel. I will begin by addressing (laughs) your, I don't know how handed or offhanded your initial comment was uh, about why we are discussing Jordan Peele's NOPE on a theater and performance studies podcast. And I will say that one of the things that I think ties together um, NOPE, Us, and Get Out, which I've written a little bit about as as a kind of, well, I've written a little bit about Get Out, but I think the three hold together as a trilogy, is that they are fundamentally about performance in the history of of filmmaking as a as a kind of cultural, uh, I know this gets debated, I would say, also racial, social, um, uh, performance practice. and that the histories of all the other performances, that have come that that are being uh, alluded to and sometimes explicitly referenced, or you know, like Jordan Peele really loves putting Easter eggs to other films in in all three, um, is is really clear. And the, the biggest one for me, for our purposes, is to look at the acting mm-hmm. um, choices and the casting choices. And my my feeling, and I I, I will welcome those who who contradict this and debate it. But I think he is very deliberate with his casting choices, not only for the actor in the role, but also for the actor, and, and this goes back to you know, Marvin Carlson's you know, theater is Memory Machine mm-hmm. or The Haunted Stage, is, is to then look back at all the other roles that they have performed. And if you look at some of those huh. selections, you can start to uncover some of the ideas and themes that he's working through. And so one of the big ones for me in NOPE is that I think this is, in some part, some significant part, a, an homage and/or remake to the 2006 Korean film by um, uh, Bong Joon Ho, uh, *The Host*, uh, which was about uh, the, you know, the sort of inciting incident is there's a U.S. military presence in uh, in Korea, and uh, and this was actually based on a true story. There was apparently a, a military figure who ordered a Korean mortician to dump formaldehyde down the drain into the Han River and then a um there was a a a, 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 a mutated fish that was discovered and in the host uh I'm going to give spoilers to this one <laughs> now, so no but in 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 the host um the same thing happens at the beginning of the film and then there's this giant uh you know like amphibious Gross mutated mutant fish uh-huh. monster that runs around, you know, grabbing and eating people. Um, but if you look at the central uh, antagonist, as it were, uh, ship monster, etc., in um, uh, in Nope, there is a feature. Mm-hmm. Um, so turn it off now if you haven't seen the seen the film. Um, that the mouth actually works on the very same mechanisms as the fish in the host. Oh, interesting. Um, and and it has certain resonances with um, with the camera, right? And in uh-huh, fact, yes. Stephen okay. Yoon, um, who I think is also chosen because of his recent performance in Minari, and is also a, a gesture to Korean cinema, um, uh, okay. uh, that he also at one point when he's doing a show uh, like a, a live performance mm-hmm. in the in the film that is a, designed to attract the 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 alien and for you know, for demonstrable purposes, for performance purposes, um, he refers to that character, right, to the monster as, he's like, these are what we call the viewers. Hmm. And so for me, part of what what Peel has done is to take, and he talks about the play as pure, or as the film as pure spectacle, um, which I would argue is another thread that (laughs) unites our three segments today. Um, But, but it as it goes as it goes through as pure spectacle and non-narrative right so you could also look at the title as being a negation of all the things we expect a film to do but i think it also has taken the monster and transposed it from the geopolitical uh, ecological right the destruction of the natural environment distortion of the natural environment and has transposed the villain or the the monster as the evils of media consumption yes, and that the the real threat to the artist to the filmmaker to the showman is both this paradoxical dependent and threatening relationship of one's uh relationship as a view as a performer to one's viewer that at any moment one kind of keeps in close relation but can be overcome by and destroyed by at any moment as well
0: okay this actually clarifies a much less coherent interpretation that I was sort of (laughs) working on because watching this, I was like, okay, well there's definitely some sort of theme about performing animals, right? There's the, there's a flashback to a horrendous incident of a chimpanzee on a sitcom who, uh, uh, goes, uh, berserk and kills and mutilates a bunch of actors on a sitcom set. There's an early scene where one of the horses, the main characters in no, you, if you're listening to this this far and you're probably already not you've probably already seen it or you don't care about the spoilers but there's an early scene where one, they are uh uh kiki palmer and daniel kaluuya are are siblings and members of a an african-american uh family of horse wranglers in hollywood they have a horse on set and one of the horses uh uh kicks uh go you know there's an accident gets the, the horse gets spooked and and um almost hurts somebody and then the you know, it's a fundamentally a creature movie. It's a monster movie um, And the monster is sort of morphs from being understood as a UFO looks like a UFO But then it becomes treated as another animal. It's another animal. It's another predator that has to be tamed and dealt with um, So I was thinking of you know of the scholarship in the field Marla Carlson's work on animal <laughs> animal performance the oh, limits yeah. of human subjectivity and a uh, chowdery and Holly Hughes anthology animal acts Kimara's work on horses themselves because there's something going on with Animals being filmed, animals as performers, and the dangers of that. But it seemed like there was something cr- about the creepiness of show business going on, and the creepiness of the need to capture something on film, to film something. Um, so I, I want to hear
2: what Harvey has to say, but I'll just yes, say that yeah. that the link actually the other the other. I would also connect Jennifer Parker Starbuck, yes, both because she writes about animals, but also because she writes about cyborgs, mm. yes, and technology. And there is a real fear through all three of media and the digital, okay and a kind of valorization of the analog mm-hmm. as the thing that might save you, right? Yes. And so um, so we get a whole bunch of media that play across this, including VHS, tapes, records right analog technologies alongside video computers and um and and so i i also think that that jen's work connecting both of those things the animal performance to mechanized versions of this i think are really interesting but i'm curious yeah harvey
1: harvey what's your what's your take yeah well so going into it i knew that jordan peele had talked about wanting to create a film about spectacle but then that itself isn't particularly insightful. When someone says, I want to engage spectacle, you're like, they can mean so many things, right. so, so many things. And so I watched it twice. I watched I watched the film twice. And my current take, and it could change after a third viewing. <laughs> it could totally change. after. And by the way, this is available. You can rent it, streamable channels. So it's it's, It's, it's not, also still it, playing in movie still theaters, movie which theaters I, as well, I highly so recommend. I highly recommend you access it. it. Yeah. But what I think, what resonates with me right now is the sense that the centering around spectacle aligns itself with both race uh, and animals. You know, so, so what Peel does is spotlights and centers these groups that are often put in the margins. And so, your your lead characters are horse or animal wranglers, essentially, and their backstory is their descendants, their great 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 grandchildren of, of supposedly, you know, the um, first. Person to appear on screen in a in a in a Moybridge sort of short, you know, a black cowboy essentially riding a horse or a black person on a, a black man on a horse. And there's a way in which they're conflating race and animals and stunts, or so these, these sort of backgrounded areas, right. and that becomes central. And then when you look at the film itself, you know, uh, Stephen Yu's character, he is the uh, he gets introduced initially as, oh, he's the young kid, but he's the Asian kid in this sort of white family in this sitcom. Right. And so again, sort of race becomes this yes. marginalized spectacle aspect as well. And I think that the critique, the spotlighting, the calling out, this fascination on spectacle that, uh, sort of brings us in around, and this is my favorite part of the film, uh, the, 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 the excerpt from Gordy, the, the chimpanzee that that ultimately kills and bites off a chunk of someone's face because that's pure spectacle and and peel gives you just enough of it and it comes back it appears in the beginning it comes back in a little bit later on you sort of see the after effects of gordy's encounter with uh, one of the young actresses uh, later on the film as well and there's this teasing to it where you're almost like what happened i want to know more i want to see more and then you find yourself kind of sutured into this sort of expectation around spectacle okay and you're like that tmz person who's a character who's being like give me more where's my camera give me more of this bit so i thought it was fantastic all right this is great because i again
0: i had an in like i had questions about this and your interpretation very much helps explain uh what i couldn't figure out which was a so i've seen get out i have not seen us and then i saw this and Get Out to me is very much overtly about a, a facet of black experience and especially the sort of creepiness of nice white people to be very reductive. And with this film, I was I couldn't figure out to what extent or if the, the race of the main characters was significant. In other words, they, I, how do I put this? I, I feel like their experience in the film isn't contextualized according to their blackness very often or very heavily, but there is that very important fact that they're descended from that actor or that jockey, that black man on that horse. So immediately Jordan Peele wants you to understand that their blackness is a, a significant fact in interpreting this. But of course, the the sitcom is the Asian kid in the white family. So it that completely cements the interpretation that there's something about the, you know, I don't know, the malevolent nature of uh, uh, commodified spectacle production in Hollywood, uh, and and I don't know ra- racialized subject or subjects or marginalized subjects. Because on I film. think there's
1: something again to think about Gordy. <laughs> just by, just, by, right, I, just I, I want to write an article someday. Gordy is, is a standout <laughs> because it's 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 ostensibly about oh my goodness there's this chimpanzee that goes berserk right one of a couple of chimpanzees presumably in terms of the casting backstory of the of the film. But within this household, what makes it a sitcom is the chimpanzee. But it's also the 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 multiracial, not it's not a multiracial family. It's the presence of Stephen Yu as a kid in that family as mm-hmm. well. right. And I think that that is something that is a very light critique mm-hmm. that Peel is giving us. I mean not, not to, just to sort of say that this treatment of race as spectacle mm-hmm. should be called out and problematized. Mm-hmm.
2: So two things. One is that I think if, if you if you see the films together as a trilogy and in sequence, each one becomes progressively less narrative, yes, and uh, and less attentive to character backstory. So one of the one of the critiques that's been sort of leveled against Nope is that the characters aren't very deep, um, and in fact, I would say that that's completely intentional. Um, it was the same thing with Us, um, where uh, Lupita Nyong'o actually is the only character that gets any real backstory, <laughs> and and that backstory is not what you think it is. So, um, and she sort of deepens that, like everything that we see because she's s- such an amazing actor, but there's, but it's always then negated, which I think also leads us to the title of the, th- of the third film. But in no, there, there's very little investment in character. And in fact, the Stephen Yoon character has a um, as part of a sort of private collection, he has a, 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 a little mini gallery exhibiting artifacts from the day that Gordie, uh, the chimpanzee, um, went uh, berserk and and injured people. Um, and, and when he's asked about it, he does this really fascinating thing, which is he doesn't tell the story of what he remembers. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, you know... That story was captured best in the in the SNL skit <laughs> with Chris Kattan playing Gordy, and then he narrates an imaginary right. Saturday Night Live sketch yes. about the sitcom mm-hmm. that he was on, and then we cut between Stephen Yoon narrating the SNL, the imaginary SNL skit, and images and flashbacks of little uh. Uh, I can't remember that character's name now.
0: Is it Daniel? No. Um, what is what is the character? No, Daniel's the name of one of the actors.
2: Um,
0: he runs Jupiter's claim. I don't know that. Yeah, don't know that uh, oh, Jupiter. Jup. Jupe. Jupe. They it's call Jupe. him Jup. Jupe. Okay. There we go. Um,
2: uh, he yeah. So th- so and him as a kid underneath a table watching the the, you know, the violence un- unfold in in front of him, and so I found that also. Mm-hmm really interesting. And the context, of course, or the camera position in the flashback to the sitcom is that we see very little of the set from the perspective of the camera. So what you would have seen on TV, we see almost everything Mm -hmm. is the backstage. Mm -hmm. And that also becomes really critical because in the same way that, as you're pointing out, Harvey, he's really interested in in people and communities that are marginalized, he stages them within these, these marginalized spaces. Yes. Uh, physically, right. Mm-hmm. So we're backstage, we're under a table. If you go back to get out, right. The key scenes are, are in these, yep. you know, weird basement rooms yes. that have been constructed. Um, us, you know, often happens around windows and mm-hmm. door frames, and, uh, and in gardens, right. And, and there's a key scene in a boat, right. So these like liminal transitional spaces, um, is really where he's interested in. And I mean, the, this, this goes back to the whole question of like, when you watch a film, you see, as a viewer, right, very, very little of mm-hmm. what's actually happening. Yes, right. And he's really interested in bringing all of the invisible labor and and attention and dynamics into the into the frame.
1: And there's something that along those lines that you get in the in the opening moments of of the film when you have OJ, right, um, who's the um, the lead male character arriving with a horse, you know, on a sa- on, on a stage, and the horse has red tape because it's a, to, to have the horse stand out against the green screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a blonde actress who clearly is much too old for whatever role she's going to play, right. and there's a sense there's some Hollywood magic that's going to happen <laughs> in that transformation, and there's something about that that sort of what you're seeing. In everyday life, is actually fabricated in some manner, and because they're giving you that glimpse behind the scenes, the process of making Mm -hmm. um, uh, through special effects and horse wranglers and animal trainers and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a special glimpse, right? At how spectacle gets made and manufactured, but but in a way that
0: at least for me is not at all about the fetishizing of that equipment and that experience and that technical wizardry, but instead it just feels it feels dangerous and awful you know i feel i feel like that's one of the things i liked about the film is it just i was like this is sort of like showbiz stuff but in in ways that make you feel like it's quite malevolent and and something to be very careful of and get away from well uh, people should watch nope if you haven't you probably have already we have a way in this podcast of of checking in with pop culture um, way after it's out. <laughs> I think on an upcoming episode, we're going to talk about Nathan, uh, Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal, again, after everyone has had plenty of time
1: to see him. Well, the goal is to have the work saturate yes. <laughs> viewership so that we're not spoiling too many things for you. Yeah, we're not behind the eight ball. We're, you know, making sure that it's not
0: spoiled for you by listening to the podcast. But uh, in contrary, well, actually, both in contrast to that and dead on, um, we saw Elton John in concert last night um, so because of the, um, passing of Queen Elizabeth, the uh, it ends up being a very current event. Um, <laughs> there was an AP story about Elton John mentioning, uh, Queen Elizabeth, the at this concert, but of course we did not choose to see this, uh, on the basis of any foreknowledge of that, um, uh, event. We, when we are able to record in the same town, we'd like to see a bit of performance together. And this is what we chose. Um, Harvey, I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to serve this up for us? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So I, I will, I will take responsibility for this one (laughs) when we decided to record here in Toronto, I looked and saw that there are a number of things that are happening on this, this weekend. There's Elton John performing his farewell tour. There's, there's Taylor Swift you know, who will be in conversation with the documentary that she, that, that she's producing uh, as part of larger TIFF uh, International Film Festival, Toronto International Film Festival. And then there, of course, there's plays <laughs> <laughs> you know, that we could have gone and seen. And, and what interested me about Elton John is this ability to kind of check in in the moment with history, mm-hmm. right? So here's a person who has been engaged at a very high level, for decades. So this is currently his fifty-fifth year, I believe, performing at least post his partnership with Bernie Taupin. Uh, he's seventy-five years old. He's been a person who has been present and identifiable and and at the lead uh, in sort of popular music for every decade, you mm-hmm. know, going back, you know, for fifty-five years. And and there's something about that. There's something about being able to see a person who has and we watched this in the concert, you know, where he had scenes of himself performing with John Lennon. Yeah. And on this day, he has the number one album in Canada with Britney Spears. <laughs> and, and, and that is unique and that is special. Yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to think about Elton John, think about his legacy related to performance as well. Uh, think about his uh, effectiveness around fundraising and, uh, and HIV and AIDS advocacy. Uh, that he is a person who hasn't limited himself in terms of large, big conversation. He's actually been a person mm-hmm. who has made himself part of the contemporary world. So even when you talk about Queen Elizabeth dying, the mm-hmm. fact that people want to know what he's going to say because he was good friends with Princess Diana
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, is of interest. But I want to hear your thoughts about this concert. Yeah. Sarah? <laughs>
2: So many things happened in the con. I mean, for, first of all, the concert as a live event was fascinating because El- Elton John doesn't move, <laughs> and and that's not a slight on Elton John. I mean, he he has talked historically about why he why he embraced such outlandish costumes and and antics and it was because he was a piano player and there's just not a lot of dancing yeah. around the stage you can do with the piano. So he had to do something to draw a lot of attention to himself. Um, that's one version of, of what he's done, but, and, but, but he is, you know, he is 75. Um, he is, you know, had a tremendous amount of energy. Um, but he's not, he's not jumping up and down and flinging, you know, doing donkey kicks off the keyboard anymore. <laughs> um, so the, the, st- the sort of proxy for that level of performance was all in these enormous uh, projections that run continuously throughout the entire show, both yeah. both live feeds of him and, and, and video of the band, which is pretty common, but also a complete, uh, I mean, you can't see my face, but the range <laughs> of material in the projections, right? Everything yeah. from, you know, young people dancing on colored backgrounds to what were presented as fans dancing in their (laughs) Elton John gear, but it was clearly professionally done. So I don't know how we recruited those folks, um, to some really bizarre cat claymation characters dancing together. Um, you all know my affection for, for cats and, and animated, um, films, Um, To recycling both historical footage from his concerts and image and the biopic Rocket Man footage uh, in which he is, you know, he is the subject but not actually performed And, and then presenting that almost as if a biopic. And so that... You know, plus some really strange animations of all styles. I mean, it was really I mean <laughs> yeah. the, the the projections alone, that that I wish I could have seen more than once, I have to be honest with you. Like cause I just could not record mm-hmm. visually everything that was coming at me. But but a fascinating and of course, because we had great seats, thank you, Harvey. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were still in the in the upper deck of you know the Rogers Center, formerly known as the Sky Dome. And so you know, Elton John is about the size of you know a a nickel on your floor, on the floor, <laughs> you know, ten feet away. So mm-hmm. there's really not much to watch of him. So you're only watching the screens yes. the entire time.
0: Yeah, I, I thought that was. I was used to that. I, I'm not a big concert goer. Sarah, Sarah and I were talking about this last night. Neither of us are big like concert goers. Whenever I go to a concert, it's usually because a friend has suggested it, and I'm always happy that I went. But I never am like hunting them out. But I've seen you know, some big concerts sort of of this genre before I saw the rolling stones when I was in high school and they were already quite superannuated. And it was another sort of, you know, it was mile high stadium. So it's, you know, normal sized men running around, but a gig, you know, a 70,000 person capacity space. And it, the way they make it scale is with these pyrotechnics and these video displays, um, I'll have to say that, you know, in the, though the video displays were, you know, super, uh, super, I don't know, attention drawing and over the top and the entire surface of the stage seemed to be layered in these projections, I felt like Elton John actually came up to the level and didn't get upstaged by them in spite of his, you know, age and re- restricted movement. He was very careful to take breaks in the song and again, podcast listeners will not be able to enjoy this physicality, but he would <laughs> stop playing and then he would sit and suddenly face the audience and point to one section and then point to the other and then point to another and then go back to playing. Um but I felt like his energy and his, you know, uh uh, uh showmanship and commitment it allowed him to match those those elements. Um to take it back to theater and performance scholarship, I I I don't write about mediated performance that much, but when I teach performance theory, I'll often teach Peggy Phelan and then um, uh, Phil Auslander's uh, uh, discourse on liveness and specifically liveness in rock music. And so I'm very familiar with the sort of argument that the contemporary live performance, right? You go to see Elton John in person, and you buy an expensive ticket and you move around and you go to all this trouble so that you're in the same contiguous space with the actual guy rather than listening to the studio recordings, which I always find better anyway. But you're there and you can see him. And yet this is not, you know, it, it is an, a hyper technologically saturated experience. The um, There's all sorts of audio mixing that you can't really tell, you know, you can't really keep track of. Um, the, the performance is both for the people who are there live directly, but also the performance is for all of the cameras that are watching his fingers on the keys and different angles on him from around the stage. Um, there's all, all that, all that, um, sort of inter, interblending of what we would think of as sort of pre-technological or, or sort of pre-digital certainly, or, um, electronic technology and, and contemporary. Um, but I thought it was, I thought it was great. I, the thing that this reminded me of was I went and saw Bob Dylan at Madison square gardens in like the year 2001. And similarly, it's like a friend was like, let's go do this. And I was like, yeah, I want to see Bob Dylan in, in person. (laughs) And we're, you know, hundreds of yards away. Bob Dylan, you know, it was just, he, you, that I did not enjoy so much because he was not the showman that Elton John was, but Elton John, you can argue that pop music is always a theatrical genre. Right. Um, Paige McGinley has written a great book about about uh, one aspect of this. Um, but uh, even, you know, within that sort of general theatricality, there's minimalism and maximalism. And I feel like Elton John is a maximalist. It all goes in. He had something like three different drummers as, as background. He's doing yeah, percussion
2: changing. was was over <laughs> half the backup band.
0: He just keeps collecting drummers and adding them. But there's some, you know, the, his commitment to his reputation as a showman you know he's an amazing songwriter I think he's got a great voice and his voice is diminished so he was not hitting the upper registers on a lot of those songs and then in the last few songs um, including yellow brick road um, uh, and is it uh, your song Um, at any rate he he sort of saved his range Mm -hmm. so at the end the last couple of songs of the evening he was going up and hitting the higher notes which are so pleasurable so I was a, yeah, I was, a, I was totally won over. I was a fan. And of course, we can't um, leave the topic without uh, talking about the sort of other text going on, which was what is he going to say about Queen Elizabeth II dying? He is not only English, but he's a knight of the realm, knighted by the, the queen, Sir Elton John. Herself, Sir Elton John. And he's playing in Canada, which is technically or legally part of the Commonwealth. Formerly uh, formerly the British Empire. We spent a lot of time speculating what if anything would Elton John say or do when Princess Diana died he rewrote the lyrics um, to uh, candle in the wind originally written about Marilyn Monroe and her life it seemed impossible that he would do that or dedicate that song to Queen Elizabeth, not just because... Listeners,
2: he did not. No, he, of course he did <laughs> not. Um, he did the version to Marilyn Monroe with with also a, a weird... Marilyn Monroe lookalike. Oddly, Monroe. literal, <laughs> little backstory filming <laughs> thingy of Marilyn Monroe. That was also...
1: It, the bizarre. Strange. Bizarre. Um, so it was like some actual footage and then some added footage? Well, was I don't, it all actual? So I have I don't to say,
2: I don't, I don't think any of it was actual.
0: I don't think I don't think there's an image of Marilyn Monroe. Any of those, oh, real I think that of was those images
2: like. from from documentaries that have been done. But they were made to look documentary like. Yes. And but they were also like, it's like no one would have had a camera. That was my thought for some of those things, yes. In in like 1957. Yes. You know, I don't believe so, I don't believe yes, any of those images clarity. were of Marilyn Monroe. But um, it was very it was very odd. It goes back to my earlier comment about Stephen Muon's character, Jupe and Nope being, the, you know, telling the story of of his own experience through the Saturday Night Live uh, version.
0: But then the suspense was finally lifted sometime in the second set he did pause. It was after he introduced all of his band members as the as is, is that right, and then gave a sort of extended tribute to Toronto, which has a special place in his heart. He has family and friends here. He then acknowledged the passing of the queen in a short speech, which uh, seemed very, you know, I don't know, respectful and 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 sort of um, uh, appropriate, I suppose, given that setting. At any rate, it was a matter of some um, interest to us before before the fact. I don't know. What did you guys think about that approach to that event or that coincidence?
2: You know, I I I'm a, 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 you know an American only recently given. Permanent residency status here in Canada. I defer to people who know the history and understand <laughs> all of this much better than I, and I, I, I am still learning.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, there was it was the big question for all of us, yeah. Because I mean, it was it was the news. You 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 woke yeah. up in the morning, yeah, and Queen Elizabeth II had died, and I and I was in London for the for the jubilee, and I've never seen as many people in my life to the point where I never want to be in a crowd that big. Mm-hmm. again <laughs> it was it was uncomfortable like they, they blocked off streets to the point where you just felt trapped it was like shoulder to shoulder tens of thousands of people it's a lot of people so so just to think about the collective mourning that's existing right now it must be quite profound mm-hmm. and so to wake up in the morning and to see that she had died and and it was dominating the news everywhere including um and, and, the, and the great perk of, of being in Toronto, is you get both the Toronto news and the Buffalo news, right? So you get oh yes, you, you get both sides of the border news. Yeah.
2: The Bills played yesterday. The also. Bills won. They the Bills won very well. Yes. And you too. Yeah. And and so we were
1: wondering. We we're like, well, Elton John. Yeah. He has to comment. Yeah. Is he going to open the show? Yeah. Uh, is is it, what is he going to perform? Yeah you know, what is the piece going to be? And we were waiting and, and, and uh, panel and Sarah can attest that I had my phone, so I was going to capture it. And maybe 20 times I had my phone, you know, sorry, I hit record. I was like, nope, not right now. Nope, not right now. Yeah. And then indeed it was after the break, the pause, when... The lights came up, and there was a Union Jack that was sort of spread across one of the drum kits. Yes, one of and the I, mini drum kits. <laughs> and I thought, okay, this is going to be the moment. But then it wasn't yeah. quite because that was the, that was the introduction, you know, for the, for the band, and it was a very brief uh, remark, just basically to say, you know, I'm 75 years old, and uh, you know, in some form, the Queen has been part of my life, and she's. Uh, she's worked hard and she, she's earned her peace and she's earned her rest. And that's, and that was really it. But then he's saying, don't let the sun go down on me or, 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 or come down on me or whatever the song is. And I thought that was an interesting thing because none of us anticipated that one. And I was like, is this a weird, like British empire? Yes. Yes, tribute, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, where it's, it's like the sun never goes down on yes, the British well, Empire. And I was like, is that why you chose that piece? Right? I was
0: trying to find a way to crowbar some sort of reference to the British Empire into our discussion for Nope, because that to me was this, the theme that threatened to hold the episode together. The British, the legacy of the British Empire in, in Ghana, mm-hmm. and then this very strange, very remote um, uh, moment of cognizance of the the stretch of that empire and its uh personification in queen elizabeth II, um and how will elton john deal with it in toronto um an unforgettable uh live experience the last time we did this we went and saw wallace Shawn play in in, in chicago and met and met Wallace Shawn. We did. Yep. We didn't meet Elton John. That's okay. It would have been but too he'll, much.
2: But he, as he said last night, he'll be back. So, you know, I fully intend on, you know, hanging out <laughs> the next time he's in town and I'll, yeah. let, I'll let you know.
0: He could go the way of Sarah Bernhardt and do five or six farewell tours of the United States, but he seemed quite sincere. Um, uh, listeners, if you're a fan, if you listen all the way through the episodes of our podcast, you know about our final <laughs> segment, Drafts. Um, these are our. Uh, our musings, our thoughts, our um, experimental setups, our um, uh, incomplete uh, cognitions. Um, uh, Harvey, what's what's your draft for us today? That's a good question, <laughs> Sarah. Sarah, what's <laughs> your draft for us today?
2: So my draft, uh, I sort of talked about it at the beginning, but just to just a, a, a little. Goodbye, and to say thank you very much to the panel for inviting me initially to be to be on the podcast, and um, uh, also to thank everyone for 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 listening. It's been a real pleasure, especially when we've been at conferences and been able to do live recordings, but also people who've come up to me and and you know said that they listened to it. And I, I just want to thank everybody for for all the time and attention, and um, and getting to be part of such a uh, I think a, a really novel form of discourse. I really uh, it's been it's been really great. In some ways, I can't believe I'm saying goodbye to it because I don't get to have conversations about interesting things um <laughs> in the field as often as I talk about other things like, you know, budgets and collegial governance and policies. So I you know, it's i I, I really enjoyed it and I just want to say thank you. and 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 a special thanks to everybody for for listening uh, as we've been doing all these episodes. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. Ar- Harvey. yeah, I
1: think the along those lines just reflecting and re- and and thinking back on previous conversations and I was doing that throughout this episode. Mm-hmm. So when we we're talking about Elton John and the screens, I was thinking about our conversation about s Devlin right mm-hmm. and and how mm-hmm concerts are structured to be captured on phones mm-hmm. and 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 that is true and that worked really well to be reviewed and and shared uh, for people beyond those who are there live so yep. i was thinking about that or even um you know that scene you know in where where jude in uh nope sort of opens a door you see the 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 room of of gordy mm-hmm. uh, we had an episode where we looked at was it Black Mirror, Black Masks? What was it? What, Black was, Mirror. I think we did a Black Mirror. Black we Mirror did, we, episode. Yeah,
2: we did. Yeah, we that's the one we talked about at Circe did when we, we weird, were at, brand. at Sur- yeah, so, yeah.
1: So, so we did that episode and it was brand new to me, but then after, and I was kind of mixed in the episode that we had to watch. But then I binged watch the whole season. And there's an episode there where uh, you go into like a back room that looks kind of like that, right? Where someone is being executed basically and mm-hmm. it's filmed. It, and and I was thinking about how oh, the
2: Black co- Museum,
1: the Black Museum, yeah. exactly. And you know, so I was thinking about how the conversations we've had over the last you know, five years just connect in interesting ways and they shift and they and and they change your perspective. Mm-hmm. And I've benefited from from you know being a listener but also being a participant. So thank you so much for this.
0: I appreciate that, Harvey. Well, <clears throat> I wanted to save my draft for the end because I did want to thank you both sincerely on um on the recording. Um, you know, reaching out to both of you was a very smart idea. I had, I thought, when I was thinking about who I would want to do this with. Who are people in the field who are broadly knowledgeable, who are well known, who are well liked, who have that positive energy? Well, we were um, at one point anyway, before we did <laughs> the podcast.
2: <laughs> hey, just,
1: just for the listener to know, when 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 panel called me up to ask me to join, he said, "Well, we were thinking about who to." who to, who to bring on board as, as a third, as a third, third person here. And I was like, I was imagining all the many reasons why I would be uh-huh. brought in. And panel was like, you speak fast, Harvey, and Sarah and I do too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we yeah. think yeah. your Say voice that. will work well with ours." <laughs> I think
0: I remember that. I remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I called Sarah. I, I emailed you, set up a phone call. I don't think we had met. Um, and, but I was like, I bet that Sarah Jung is going to like this. And you said, yes, I love the Slate podcast. Um, and Harvey, I'm, I think I asked you in your actual office, I surprised you with a little pitch and a, and a one, one page project sheet and was so happy that you were willing to do it. It puts me in mind, Harvey, of your speech that you gave at ATHA after receiving your career achievement award, say Yes. Um, thank you for saying yes, Sarah. Thank you for saying yes, and and listeners, don't worry. I have already extracted agreements from these two to return occasionally. This is not the last time you'll ever hear Harvey and Sarah on on tap. Um, but we have a great group of regular co-hosts who've joined us in the past couple of years. Um, uh, we may shift the format a little bit and and welcome. Um, other voices, um, new sorts of, of types of episodes, but we're going to keep the podcast going and releasing on a monthly schedule. Um, uh, I will say also that because we're in person here, we get to be in the presence of producer Charles Ketchabaugh. Charles, you want to say hi? Hi. This is Charles Ketchba at York, um, who, thanks to York University, and, and thanks uh, certainly to to Sarah, is is one of our great assets to this to this production and to this show. Um, so the gratitude goes on and the continuity goes on. Um, listeners, we will be back uh, with another episode of On Tap in about a month, so tune in.
2: On Tap is produced and engineered by Charles Ketchba. It's supported by the School of the Arts, Media, Performance and Design at York University in Canada, and its Department of Theatre, with undergraduate and graduate programs in theatre performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com, that's o-n-t-a-p-p-o-d.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.